Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, wherever we are right now in our spirits, in our minds, our hearts, whether we are a little unsettled or whether we're just excited to hear from you, Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak to us, that where we need to be encouraged, you'd encourage us, where we need to be challenged, you'd challenge us. Lord, that you would help us to become more like Christ. Help us to live kingdom-first lives. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So there is officially no Guinness Book of World Records for the furthest football thrown. Technically, even the NFL doesn't say, I mean, they could probably figure it out, but they have nowhere that you can actually find who has thrown the football the farthest. Now, the unofficial record came back in 1988 during the quarterback's challenge when Vinny threw an 80-yard pass. I mean, just think of that. 80 yards. That's almost a football field. I mean, could you imagine? I was watching, we were at a park yesterday, and I was watching this guy play with his son. Um, and I mean, he was throwing that ball, but it was nowhere near 80 yards. <laughs> well, that record has been broken. Um, over the Super Bowl weekend, there was a video posted, and there is a guy named Tom Kopkra who threw a football 564,664 yards. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking of all the reasons that cannot be true. You're thinking of all, what's the trick, or why is my pastor lying to me or making something up? Or, I mean, you're trying to figure out how this could act, because it can't be real. Nobody throws a ball 564,664 yards. But from the time that it left his hand until the time it landed, the ball traveled 564,664 yards. And yes, a few people have already said it. He's an astronaut. He's in zero gravity. The ball also was in the air for 64 seconds. But you still have to ask, because you can watch the video. NASA released it. You can go watch the video, and you can see that the space station is not 564,000 yards long. The ball inside the space station travels about 80 yards. And if you're watching the video, you can watch it travel. It's a nice spiral through, too. He throws a good one. It's like going down... And it finally lands. But if you back up from that picture and you see the whole thing, the space station is moving at 17,500 miles an hour orbiting the Earth. And the ball moves at 8,800 yards per second. But you cannot see that in the small picture. In the small picture, all you can see is a part of the equation. You can only see a part of what is actually happening. And you miss the bigger picture. In fact, the bigger picture, without it, the numbers just sound ridiculous. That's 5,600 football fields. There's no way a ball flies that far until you get the big picture. Today in our passage, 
And it actually, we're picking up from last week. Um, we're continuing on. We're actually picking up something in last week's passage and moving forward. Um, they are missing the bigger picture. In fact, they don't even seem to have the capacity to see the bigger picture. They're so ingrained in their present, current view that the bigger picture, they, they, they can't seem to even step back. Right, let me show you what I mean. Open up your Bibles just to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. You remember last week, if you were here, and if you're not, weren't, this is just a quick review. Jesus healed a woman or released a spirit from a woman who had been disabled for 18 years. He freed her on the Sabbath. And when he does this, there are two responses. There are two interpretations. I want to go further. They're not just responses. They are interpretations of what is happening with Jesus. They're interpretations of who he is and what he's doing. And there are two of them. And they are both wrong. But they are the interpretations that are coming from the small picture that these people have of the kingdom of God. See, they have a definite idea of what the kingdom is, about how the kingdom will come, about what it will look like. And they're so ingrained in it that when you tell them that somebody can throw a football 564,000 yards in the kingdom, they go, no, they can't. That's not possible. That's not what the kingdom looks like. And so when Jesus releases this woman on the Sabbath, by the power of the kingdom coming, they cannot see the kingdom. One group, the rulers, and it's plural, so it's not just the ruler of the synagogue. It's likely the other religious leaders that were there at the time. They are opposed to Jesus. Their interpretation is this. What you're doing is real. There's no doubt about that. But it can't be the kingdom of God. Because people coming in the kingdom of God, they intensify the practices of the law. You're undermining them. Therefore, it must be from the devil. The crowds, on the other hand, they go, wow, that is awesome. But Jesus is nothing more than a prophet. Because the miracle that he did, that's not a kingdom, Messiah coming, world-changing miracle. That's just healing one woman. That's what a prophet does. So they're excited, but they still don't see the kingdom. Neither group can see the kingdom. Two interpretations, both wrong, because they have an absolute view of what the kingdom would look like. And this isn't it. And, and they weren't alone. His disciples had a wrong view of the kingdom too. It's why you have throughout the gospels these little passages like James and John coming and saying, hey, when you come in your kingdom, set us at your right and your left hand. And they totally don't get how the kingdom is coming, what it means, what that means. Even after the resurrection, but before the spirit comes in Acts, they're asking, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They still don't get it because they have a definitive, definite, ingrained view of what the kingdom is. And what Jesus is doing isn't fitting it. 
So what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do when the people have the wrong view, the wrong interpretation? They're not seeing things rightly. Look down at verse, thir- uh, verse 18. Chapter 13, verse 18. He said, therefore, this is in response to their interpretation. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? Here's what he's doing. Okay. Well, he did lay into him. We saw that. I mean, he let him know where that was wrong, but he doesn't give up on them. He doesn't abandon them. He doesn't go, how can you guys not get this? You stupid people. He doesn't do that. What he does is he says, all right, let me, let me see. What can I compare the kingdom to? How can I help you get this? How can I broaden your vision for what the kingdom is? I gotta give you an image, a picture, a way that you can start to see the kingdom. I want you to step back. I want the camera to move back so that you can see the entire space station, not just this one little corridor that the ball is going down. How do I help you do that? All right. It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and it became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Y'all know what a mustard seed is, he would say to them. Got this little seed. It's like something that was very small, very little. And yet when it was planted, it will become a tree where birds can make homes in it. The kingdom of God will be a place of safety, a place that will be large, even though it started very small. It'll be a place of home, but it started very small. You gotta remember that because that little small part has no place in their understanding of the kingdom. In their understanding of the kingdom, Messiah was going to show up with an army at his back. Messiah's castle was going to drop out of the sky and crush the Romans. Messiah was not going to be born in an obscure village somewhere, live an obscure life for 30 years, and then wander around doing some miracles, not looking anything like the one we thought he would be. It started small. It wasn't just going to be healing all of Israel, but it was going to be healing this one woman who'd been disabled for 18 years because the kingdom cares about individuals. The kingdom was going to start very small, but it wouldn't stay that way. And in fact, let me give you one more. He says, and again, it is, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now, part of this image is the amount. Um, You're not going to get this. I wouldn't have got it. But three measures of flour is the equivalent of 50 pounds of flour. I just think about the little things that you buy at the store. 50 pounds of flour. The leaven started out small, but even though it was 50 pounds of flour, it still permeated all of it, and it could not be stopped. The kingdom will start small, but it will become big, and you cannot stop it. 
no matter what it looks like, even though the religious leaders right now are against me, even though it doesn't look like, I mean, we're sleeping on the ground. Right? We have no place for our head. But the kingdom of God cannot be stopped. God is doing something. It is moving forward. That is the kingdom of God. I need, to, I need to expand your vision. I've got to pull the camera back. I need you to see something more than what you're seeing. The kingdom of God starts out small, but it will become big. It starts out small, but it cannot be stopped in its forward movement. It will become what God desires it to become. That's the kingdom you need to see. For me, most incredible part about this passage, and that may be an overstatement, one of the incredible parts about this passage, I don't want to paint myself into a corner here, because then somebody's going to say, well, what about this or this? This is one of the incredible things about the passage. He could have just been so frustrated and just thrown his hands up and said, I'm done with you guys. Like, all of these miracles and all of these exorcisms and all of this teaching and you still don't get it? That's it. I'm done. I, I've done this over and over and over and you are so thick-headed that you just can't get it. And I know he could have done that because I have done that. I imagine you have too. What I'm amazed with is the beautiful balance of Jesus going, all right, let me deal with the ethical part of your misunderstanding, you hypocrites. How dare you save your animals but not a person? But now that I've dealt with that, let me step in and patiently teach you about the kingdom of God, even though you are complete stupid people. There is such a beautiful patience to him where he's not abandoning them, though he's doing these incredible things and they should absolutely get that the kingdom is here. He doesn't give up on them and he does not give up on us. You, I, we need to see this. As often as we misunderstand God as often as we turn from him, as often as we rail against him at times because he's not doing the things we want him to do, he doesn't abandon his people. He still wants to teach you. He still wants to correct you. He still wants to pull the camera back and let you see a bigger picture at times. He still wants you to trust him that even when you can't see the bigger picture, he does. By his word, by his spirit, by a friend, God wants to teach us without abandoning us, even when we are stupid people. On the flip side, I think we're called to the same thing. If we're called to be imitators of our God, if we're called to walk like Christ walked, we are called to have that same attitude. Not abandoning people when they don't get it. Not abandoning people as we get more and more frustrated. But being willing to correct 
but correct patiently. Being willing to speak into a person's life without saying, ah, I'm just done with you. can't take it anymore. In the way that God treats us, we're called to treat others. Let me give you a, a picture of not doing this, right, just to show you what it looks like. For the past month, about 30 days, my children have been sick for like 15 of them. And they have missed so much school, and I am just so tired of being home with sick kids. Like, I like spending time with my kids, don't get me wrong. I don't care for it as much when they're like snotting everywhere and coughing and throwing up and got fevers and they're whining about everything, and, and over time it just starts to wear on you. Well, one of my children who couldn't quite seem to get over his cough, I think he used his cough to get out of school. On Wednesday, I brought him to school, and we get a call not long after that that he has thrown up. It's more like spit up. He was coughing so hard and everything, and, and they say he has a fever, and I'm like, oh, God. So I go get him. I bring him home. No fever. He's not coughing. I monitor him the whole day. I monitor him. He gets up the next morning. He's like, woohoo, hi, Daddy. You know, and no fever, nothing. I'm like, I know the rule, 24 hours, fever-free, take him to school. But he didn't have a fever, <laughs> and he was faking it, and I needed to get work done. So I took him to school. A little while after he's there, we get a phone call. I get one. My wife gets one. I am so frustrated. I'm like, I cannot believe I have to go get this kid. And, I'm just, I'm, and so my wife calls me, and she says, these are her words, she says, I'm going to let you handle this. <laughs> she says, I am either going to be too mean or too nice, but you are a priest. <laughs> you are going to be just right. No pressure. I'm supposed to be God's Goldilocks here. This person was too mean. This person was too nice, but you're a priest. So here I am walking in to get my kid, no pressure or anything, I'm just representing God. And I get to the door and the lady opens up the door and the first thing that she does is she goes, I am so sorry. And that's the moment, I have my moment to decide, will I be God's Goldilocks or, and I chose, or. And I looked at her and I walked right by, very priestly. And I walk in, and I'm thinking, that's not the right thing to do. And I walk into the office, and this is where I just lost it. My son is sitting on the ground. He's watching an iPad. And I walk in, and he goes, hey, Dad. <laughs> that was it. I, this, this lady walks back in, and I'm like, I am a good parent. I have kept my kids home every time they've had a fever. He did not have a fever. You cannot check fevers. You guys don't know what you're doing. I know what I'm doing. I'm a good parent. I'm taking my kid. And I was walking out, and she goes, I'm really, really sorry. And I said, <clears throat> and stomped away as a good priest. And then I was driving home going, Oh, Lord, <laughs> forgive me. That was not Goldilocks. 
that was not even close. Um, it was like all three bears in one eating each other. And, oh. But that's what we do, because here's what I can say. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that she was right in what she did. I don't know that, um, here's what I know. I was wrong. I know that. The way I handled that was wrong. I could have come in and I could have said, you know, here's why I brought the kid in here. Did you guys check this? It could have been this. Um, are you checking more than once? Because checking fevers in kids, as we know, because we've had to talk to our doctors because they've been to the doctor like four times in the last week. And I said, you got to check more than once. I could, there's things I might have been able to do, but I had such a wrong attitude. It was all about, I'm done with you. You're just wrong and I'm right. And I just tell you, unless you're Jesus, that is never the case. You're always partly wrong. I don't care who you are. You're always a stupid person. I know that's a terrible way to gain new people to the church, but, <laughs> but it's absolutely true. We're always missing some part of the picture. I, even if you're 90% right, you don't get to be a jerk about it. Because Jesus wasn't. Neither should we be. First thing I see in here, and it gives me great encouragement, is that our Lord doesn't abandon us when we don't get it. Even when we keep stumbling and stumbling and stumbling, and even when our picture is so myopic, that the Lord's just going, why? Golly, how many years do I have to teach you this lesson? He still wants to teach us the lesson. We need to give other people that kind of patience. But then we need to talk about consequences. Just because he gives them another chance doesn't mean they take it. And that's what happens next. Look back in your Bible. There are some consequences. Verse 22, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Um, he's continuing to do what he does. Um, he leaves this place and he teaches. Um, and we know what he's teaching. He's teaching the good news of the kingdom. That's what he started with. That's what he continues with. He's probably teaching these parables. He's probably said them multiple times. It's not like he taught the mustard seed one time. He's teaching people about the nature of the kingdom. Well, it starts to sink in. Here's the view of Israel. If you are a faithful Israelite, you will be part of the kingdom. That's basically all Israel. And if you're not an Israelite, you probably won't be part of the kingdom. But somebody is listening to Jesus' teachings. Verse 23, And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Well, as you move past the first century, there definitely is indication the Jews had some debate about this. They may or may not have been debating at this point. I can tell you that after hearing the teachings of Jesus, though, somebody's going, wait a minute. Like, if it's this different from what we think it is, if it's this small, like, if the religious leaders are maybe not, uh, like, are only a few going to be saved? What are the consequences of your teaching? And if we don't listen, and here's his answer. It's kind of shocking. And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. 
And, and I'm going to come back to this because that sounds very much like a, theologically speaking, a works righteousness kind of thing. Strive, work, go hard, put energy into going through the narrow door. It says, for, I, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. That is scary. I mean, don't let that just slip over you. Many people are going to want into the kingdom, but there will be those who don't get in. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer, I do not know where you come from. Those are the scariest words ever uttered. I don't care what you have gone through. If you ever have those words uttered to you by the Lord Jesus, they're the worst words you can possibly hear. We need to take this seriously. The image is of a master who is in his place in his home, and people have come in, and he has gotten up, and he has walked to the door, and he has closed it and locked it. And there are people going, we went in, and he said, no, it's done. I don't know you. And they say, but wait, wait. Then you will begin to say, we ate, and we drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And this is kind of important. We actually heard it in the gospel reading. There were Pharisees eating with Jesus. Now, eating in this culture, if you sit down and have a meal with somebody, table fellowship was an indication of relationship. It's the reason that Jews didn't eat with Gentiles. It's the reason that the Pharisees were saying to Jesus, why are you eating with Gentiles and sinners? Why are you doing that? It's why Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles and Paul had to confront him. Because Peter was not just going, yeah, your breath stinks, I'm gonna eat over here. Peter was going, I don't think you're part of what God is doing anymore. I'm breaking that off. They're saying, look, you had table fellowship with us. We were near you and around you. We sat down and had a meal with you and you were teaching us. How can you not know us? And Jesus says, but he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Wow, that seems kind of harsh. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table. Remember their argument. We ate with you. Jesus says in the kingdom of God, we're gonna eat together. Recline at table in the kingdom of God, and behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Proximity does not equal entrance. You can go to church all your life, just like you could sit down and have a meal with Jesus every night, but if you don't know him, it doesn't matter. Church attendance, taking the label of a Christian, wearing a Christian shirt, owning a Bible, those things will not get you into the kingdom of God. They can't. Proximity does not equal relationship. You have to know Jesus. 
How do you know him? He uses these words. He says, strive to enter the narrow door. So let me paint a picture for you. If there's a narrow door, there are a bunch of other doors. There's a bunch of other ways. If there's a narrow path, another word he uses, there's a bunch of other paths. And he says, you put all of your energy into one path, mine, my teachings, my way of life, my person. Hey, here's what you can't do. And I would, I would argue the things you have to strive against the most are your own understandings and interpretations and desires. Those are the things that will keep you from walking through that door because this door over here, this really wide one, it just looks so much easier, so much better at times. It looks like something that will meet my happiness needs. And there's all these other pathways. And Jesus is saying, there's one that is me, that you give yourself fully to me. That's the only way. On the first season, first uh, Pentecost, Peter gives the first gospel message. Very first gospel message with the Spirit. And when he gives this message, they get it. The text says they are cut to the heart. Here's what they hear. We are sinners, and we are in need of a Savior. And our Jewishness is not enough. We have to actually, in faith, consciously embrace what God is doing. We cannot just say we're Jewish. So Peter, what do we do? And Peter says, repent. Turn your life from these big open doors to Christ and give it to him. Turn your way of trying to live a good life, of trying to enter the kingdom, of trying to be a good husband or wife, of trying to be a good friend, whatever it is, turn all of it away from all these things you think, oh, I'm gonna chase after this one, or I'm gonna chase after this one. I can do this. Turn it to Jesus. Every bit of it. That door. Because that is the only door that enters the kingdom. So, two very brief things. First one is very brief. Do you know Jesus? Have you truly repented of your sin and said, you are my Savior and Lord? I cannot do this without you. I don't want to do this without you. I want to enter your kingdom right now because of you and nothing else. If you haven't, that's your first step. No matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, no matter how many church services you've attended, how many Bibles you've owned, if you've never truly turned your life over to him, start there. But number two, there's a day-to-day -day aspect to this. There's a day-to-day -day where you and I 
we just start going, no, I'm going down this path right here. No, I'm going down this path right here. No, I like this better over here. And we turn from truth. Here's why I think we do it. And now I'm going to go back to my first point. Here's why I think we do it. Because our view of what God is doing is too small. Here are the things that we often do. Let me ask you, when things aren't going your way, is your response, Lord, I'm going to trust you through this and see what you are doing. You may not pull the camera back for me, but I know back here, you're working all things for good for those who love Christ and are called according to his purpose, and that's me. And so instead of going, I'm just going to get out of this any way I possibly can, We go, Lord, do your will. I would argue that when things are rough, when we don't understand, when we are in pain, when we don't have answers, are the times where we start going, I'm taking another path. Because the narrow door is not easy. And it means you don't have answers right away. But... When we miss the narrow door, we may not miss the kingdom, but we may miss what God is doing in the kingdom with us right there. Back in World War II, there was an ingenious way that the British came up with to help POWs escape. However, they could easily miss it because it looked nothing like what you would expect the way to release and freedom was just so hidden because this is what they did. MI9 came up with a way of slipping into a Monopoly game, a map to escape, little saws, um, all kinds of a compass, all these things, they slipped into a Monopoly game. They were able to make it look like the Monopoly pieces. And so when you got the game, because part of the Geneva Convention allows for games to come in, and the Germans actually allowed, in their POW camps, they allowed games for pastimes to come in. They had to come from a charitable organization. And so the British made up charitable organizations, and they would send these games to these POWs. And the Monopoly game, literally opening it up, you could find everything you need to escape. However, when you opened it up, it just looked like a Monopoly game. You could very easily be playing the Monopoly game and not realize your escape is right there. Like all you're doing is fiddling around with things, and one of the things you're fiddling around with is actually the compass. And you could completely miss it because it's so far bigger than what you're expecting that you just look right past it. How often, how often are we doing this in our lives? Because the stuff we're going through, we only see it one way. I hurt, get me out of it. I don't like this, so I'm gonna do something about it. That school can't believe they would do this. I'm gonna give them a piece of my mind. Instead of going, God, will you show me the picture? And if not, God, can I trust you that you're actually working right here 
with this Monopoly board. They estimate that 10,000 plus soldiers escaped because of that Monopoly board. And the British didn't release that they did that until 2007 because they wanted to keep using it in other wars. Because it was such a good idea. I feel like God is just dropping Monopoly boards on our heads. And we are constantly going, yo, another Monopoly board, get me out of this. Instead of going, Lord, I'm here. Help me follow. Help me go through that narrow door. Help expand my view. Let me see the entire space station, not just this tiny view that I keep seeing the world with. And when that happens, the kingdom of God can work in ways in our lives that it won't work otherwise. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you don't abandon us. You keep trying to teach us and correct us and lead us to that narrow gate. Lord, give us the faith, the courage, the strength by your spirit to turn away from those wide paths that may seem easier, that may give us an initial relief, but also are not your way. Lord, help us to trust you in all that we're doing, that the kingdom might fully work in our lives. We ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen.